Open your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 23, and uh, that's where we're going to start this morning. And also, if you're, if you'd like to plan ahead, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 as well. So those are going to be our two main texts this morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, my name is Paul. I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here on staff, and um, uh, we are in our fourth week of a series of messages we've called Centered. Uh, it's t- we're talking about the feasts of Israel. Of uh, we know the book of Leviticus is having a whole bunch of rules in it, but we have this chapter that uh, where God part of His rules is you're going to get together, you're going to celebrate, you're going to have a feast to remember God and remember everything He does for you. Uh, today we are uh, talking about the feast of booths. Uh, I'm going to start in Leviticus 23, starting in uh, thir- verse 39. Let's see, we're working. Okay, we're not working yet. All right, 23, verse 39. All right, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this text, we have it mentions booths, and some of your translations may mention uh, tabernacles. Uh, These were temporary shelters that the Israelites lived in when they came out of Egypt. Now, the thing is, we have this graphic. Now, this is a picture of Times Square, the the surrounded, and the whole idea of this is to, there's craziness abounding, and uh, you want to be centered around God. And Carrie and I had the opportunity back in August to go to New York, and we spent some time in uh, Times Square, and if I had to describe it to you, I would say it is Black Friday Walmart for miles on end, all right? It is insanity, and, and there's something that I learned very much about myself is that I love being a suburbanite, all right? I love the suburbs. I love having a house. I, I love having a roof over my head. I have a bed to sleep in. I can curl up with blankets at night. I like having a shower, a bathroom, proper sanitation, a table to eat at, and even you know, with some of the craziness we had to do, we've, uh, we've had to uh, bring all of the leaves out to the front so they can be taken. We have snow. I mean, God help us at all. We have snow already, and we have to shovel driveways. And the thing is that I just, I love having a house. We have a big yard. My dogs can run around in it. My kids jump on a trampoline. We have a little fire pit, and we have bonfires. Of every, all the annoyances that come with owning a house, I absolutely love living in a house. And so it never makes sense to me where people go on what they call vacations and they choose to act like they don't have house. And I'm not talking about you people who have a house on wheels and you go hit every Walmart between here and Poughkeepsie uh, so, and you go on what you call vacation. That's not camping. But uh, the thing is that people can talk about uh, you know, being in a tent and you have campfires, you cook your food over it, and you... And the thing is, for me, is that that just doesn't make any sense. It's not getting away from it all. You're not connecting with nature. You're acting like you're homeless. So, for me, I think that's crazy, all right? I love living in a house. Because when I try to put up a tent, I always put it up on the the worst spot. I put it, like, on the side of a hill. And uh, so then, and when it comes time to sleep, I pick the worst spot in the tent. I'm at the bottom of the hill, so everyone rolls down, and they're kicking me in the back within 20 minutes after when I'm trying to sleep. 
But so camping to me is miserable. And we read in this is that God made the Israelites dwell in booths, in tents, uh, when they came out of Egypt. And, and I want to spend the first part of uh, our time today talking about this history of Israel that led to this festival, this feast. Uh, Israel, if you recall, they spent over 200 years in slavery in Egypt. And Egypt was the world power at this time. We talked about Babylon earlier this year and Daniel and Israel in captivity. And that Egypt was the Babylon of its day, the world power. And uh, they used slaves, the Israelites as slaves, to expand their influence of power throughout the world. And some people like to theorize that, you know, the Jewish slaves were the ones who built the pyramids. There's not a whole lot of history to back that up, but, uh, but essentially they were a free workforce. And every, all the worst parts you could think about being a slave, the Israelites had to, uh, to endure this. And so I've had this uh, thing, if they want to do something great like building the pyramids— uh, similar to what the United States, when we built our railway, they would use slaves to do this labor. You know, if we want to accomplish this great monumental task, let's throw a whole bunch of human pain and suffering at it, and that's what's going to enable to do us. It was a terrible life. And Israelites, they were the slaves. They were, they were making bricks. They would serve Egyptian households, and all these terrible things that we think about slavery, uh, Israelites had to endure. And we have enter Moses, who was an Israelite who was raised in prominence in Egypt. And he goes before Pharaoh and he says, This group of hundreds of thousands of people who are your free workforce, let them go. Let my people go. Yes, enter Charlton Heston, stage left, all right? And Pharaoh laughs at this notion. Why? Why should I let you go? You're, a, you're my slaves and you, I have no reason to fear you. No, I'm not going to let you go. And God, we read the story where God uses these plagues. He, uh, for Pharaoh and Egypt's refusal to listen to God's power, uh, God punishes them. And the culmination of this is known as Passover. The angel of death passes through Egypt. He kills the firstborn of every household. The Israelites, though, smear the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed on their doorposts so that the angel would pass them over because they were marked as God's people. And Pharaoh's house was struck by this angel of death. The firstborn of his household died that night, and he had finally had enough. He calls Moses before him, and he says, Go. The Israelites, hundreds and thousands of them, they get up everything they have, and they are able to leave Egypt. They are freedom. They are, sorry, they are free. And soon after they had left, Pharaoh has what he thinks is a moment of clarity, and he says, Well, what did I just do? All right, I just have my entire workforce. I just sent them off on their way. I have nothing. I need my slaves back. So he takes his army to go out and meet the Israelites in the desert. And I want to pause this for a second because if you're in this camp with Israel, you're a huge group of slaves and you've just been given freedom. And instead of having to make bricks and you're doing backbreaking work, your family is free now. And before God had intervened, Pharaoh had no reason to think that the Israelites were going to do anything except live and die as slaves. And so I can't fault the Israelites being in this position where they just walked out and all of a sudden they look back and they have a huge army coming after them. The fact that they're afraid, I'm okay with that, but I think they take it too far. We read in Exodus 14.10. Let's see if we can get this to work here. Uh, Oh, thank you, Brian. All right. Exodus 14.10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians 
than to die in the wilderness. Now, okay, no, we didn't want to be free. We just want to continue being slaves. And personally, I would not have blamed God if he would have stopped right then and there and sometimes like I do with my kids and just say, if that's the attitude you choose to have, then fine. Let's see how this works out for you. Go back to the Egyptians. And now, the thing is, is that I find it interesting that just as quickly as Pharaoh forgot about his fear of God, Israel forgot about their trust in God. And thankfully, God's not like me, and he saves Israel. Uh, their road leads out to the Red Sea, and Moses stretches his hand out over the water, and the water gathers up on either side. The whole possession of Israel passes through on dry ground. And uh, Pharaoh, he pursues uh, the Israelites, he pursues them into the sea, and once all the Israelites have passed, Moses stretches his hand over the water again, the waters collapse, and the walls of water come down, and the entire force of Pharaoh's army that he had taken with him was destroyed. And I want to put this in perspective, because Israel, they're not even a nation at this point. They're a tribe. They had no land. And they had no military, no king, Uh, They had no leadership except for Moses, and this band of misfit toys is able to escape the might of Pharaoh. To put this in perspective, this would be like the tribe of Delaware rising up to overcome the entire United States, all right? All right, now I'm going to put up a picture right here, and let's be honest. Sorry, thank you, Brian. Okay. Now, when's the last time you had a significant thought about Delaware? Anyone? All right. Who can even point it out in a map? I mean, kind of there. Uh, Brian can't. So yeah, we had this little E right there, right below, tucked away below New Jersey. So we have this little tiny little nuisance that speck on the map is able to overwhelm the greatest nation on earth. And I just want to keep this perspective in mind as we move throughout the story. And Israel had escaped Pharaoh, and they're out in the desert, and they're going from Ramses to Sinai, and they camp out in Sinai for a year. Moses spends some time. This is when they get the Ten Commandments, and they come down. And so they're spending this time camping out. Now, you know my thoughts on camping. I have already shared them, but imagine that. I can't imagine with my family of five, imagine having hundreds of thousands of people camping in one spot. And it doesn't take too long before people start talking. The Bible calls it grumbling. I like that. They actually start longing for the good old days in Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had food. You know, we had houses. And yeah, well, there was that one part where they whipped us when we didn't make enough bricks. But man, hey, at least they fed us. And it's a bit ridiculous to think about this, but I'm sure that camping out, that wasn't fantastically fun either. So uh, the complaints to Moses keep growing. They said, hey, Moses, we don't have any food. So Moses brings the problem before God, and, and he prays, and God says, all right, I will provide, and there's a miracle. There's manna from heaven. It says when the dew would fall on the camp at night, uh, manna would fall with the dew, and they'd wake up. There was bread from God on the ground. I think that's kind of strange, but God was providing. Moses, we're thirsty. We don't have any water to drink, and so he brings the problem before God. Moses strike a rock, and there's water that comes out of this rock so that everyone, nobody goes thirsty. And God provides. And here's my personal favorite. Numbers 11, 4. Uh, let's see here. There we go. 11, 4. Now the rabble that was among them, the great terms here, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Cost nothing. I think it was costing them something. Uh, They said the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, I didn't have time to exhaust my research on this text here, but I am fairly confident that this is the first and only time that people have cried and wept over the absence of leeks. 
I can't even tell you what a leek is. I guess it's a giant green onion, but we're going to have deliciousness later, but I don't think that anyone's going to be grabbing Gene by the collar and saying, where are the leeks? But that's just my thought. All right. Over and over again in the story, we hear these complaints. Moses, you took too long to come down from Mount Sinai. Let's make up a golden cow and worship it now, because that's the kind of behavior that got us out of Egypt. Here are the gods that gave you out of Egypt. Uh, There's this manna, this miracle bread that God gives to sustain us. Now, that's not enough. I want some meat. And anyone who has been here and who is a parent knows what kind of supernatural patience God must have had with these people. I think that every day I'm becoming more and more like my parents, and especially when I find myself asking questions that I already know they don't have an answer to. Uh, I, I go for Ethan. He's four years old. He, we have, he really is into dry erase markers right now, and we have this easel with a dry erase board that he can color on to his heart's content, but he takes it and he's drawing on our piano, on our leather couch, on everything he can he can do, and it doesn't come out, and I just look at him like, what are you thinking? And he stares at me blankly, because just like the honest answer to that is, I wasn't. (laughs) And we sit here, and we look at Israel, and we we see how they were complaining, and we see, and we want to go to them, what are you thinking? But we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight, but the thing is, is that we do it ourselves so often, The fact that we are here this morning is a miracle. I'm just talking about not even just ODCC, but I'm talking about the fact that the church exists today is miraculous. We gather here 2,000 years later to remember and celebrate the death of a Galilean carpenter who was executed. The fact that the church still exists today can only be happening by the providence of God. But even just, let's just personalize here, ODCC, we've been here, what, over 50 years. I've only been here for a year. We, this building, and we've been here since before there was anything before here in Shuring Road, and all that has been added since then. The fact that this church is here still today and thriving is only happening by God's provision. And we, we so often forget about what God has done to bring us here But we keep focusing, we complain about the most mundane and dumb things in church instead of just focusing on the goodness of God and what he's done to bring us here. And I'm very very tempted because uh, the thing is is that people, especially with something like music, and that's what I'm in charge of here, people want what they want out of that. But I have to tell you is that I don't spend any time trying to please people. Because if I try to please everybody, well, one, it's impossible. But two, it's not what any of us are called here to do. Because if nothing else, this should be a place where we don't focus on what we want. We focus on what God wants. And it's too easy to forget that God's deliverance, his miraculous, miraculous provision that has brought us to this day. Instead, we like to focus on the six inches right in front of our face. And we ignore everything else. An example of this for, for me, I spent... We started here in uh, January. The first four months of this year, uh, I spent half here throughout the week, and the other half I was at home in Illinois. So I had two and a half uh, hours in the car twice a week, and I tried to spend a lot of that time praying. And it, what I, I found that most of my prayer life had been focused on what I needed or what I wanted from God. And I, would, as a, I was especially praying at that time, God, I really want you to get my house to sell because that's what was stopping my family from being with me. So God, would you please sell my house? God, will you give Carrie some extra patience this week because she has to deal with those. I'm not going to be here. She has to deal with those three Tasmanian devils we call our children. So I, give her some extra patience. 
And God, I need this. Uh, can you be with this person? I need, I need, I need. And I had not been sp- spending any of my time focusing on thanking God for how much he's already blessed me. And I remember this moment, and I call it the moment that you just get grounded and shocked to your core. It's like sticking your finger in a light socket because this, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and it said, you know what? A lot of people would love to have your problems. Your problems. Of all the times I was praying that God would get rid of this nuisance of a house, I had not once in my life stopped and thanked him the fact that I had a house. How many people would have loved to have the problems I had? And it was just, I bowed my knees in repentance saying, you know what, that's ridiculous. I have never once thanked you for the fact that I have a house. And so I would stop, I'd stop spending these times of prayer in my car, asking God for more. I would spend all of my time thanking him for everything he's already done. Because I've heard it said this way, it resonates with me. God, if church does, uh, sorry, church, if God does not do one more good thing for me in my life, he's done enough. Israel was stuck on what they wanted from God instead of what God had already done for them. If we come to the fulcrum of the story in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, God leads Israel to the edge of the land of Canaan, the promised land. And from the time they left Egypt, God said, I have a place for you all, a land that I will show you. I will deliver it to you. And Moses sends 12 men to spy on the land of Canaan. And let's all sing the Sunday school song, okay? 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were... All right, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Okay, there it is, okay. 10 were bad, 2 were good, all right. So the men come back, and they have this report that says, yeah, this land is awesome. It's flowing with milk and honey. It'd be so great if we could live there, but bad news is they have armies. These armies have huge dudes that look very tall, and there's no way that we can take this land. Now hold the phone. All right, the land of Canaan, as great as it was, had nothing on Egypt, Israel, you're Delaware. You already took out the whole rest of the United States, and you're getting worked up about the armed force of Guatemala. All right? That's what was happening here. And I I taught earlier this year in, in a sermon, I said that in my mind, faith always boils down to two questions. One is, is God good? Two, can God be trusted? Do we believe that God's good? Do we believe that God will keep his promises? Do we believe that God can do what he says he's going to do or what he promises to do? We need to keep that in mind, those two questions, because the bad reports from those 10 spies, they got the entire camp riled up. And we read about this in Numbers. It says, then, all right, see here. Oh, that's, I'm still on the leaks there, okay. All right, and then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they actually say to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The thing is that God ends up giving them what, what they think that they want. God's response in verse 11, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? And continuing in verse 28, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. 
your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Would that we have not died in this wilderness? Okay, get what you want. And all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones who said you would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know that they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. God will bear with us through our lack of maturity. God will bear with us through our doubts. He will even bear with us through our complaints. But one thing he will not do is he will not waste any time trying to deliver a people that do not want to be delivered. I've said it this way, I've heard it this way before that you're not going to see any scratch marks from the fingernails of people that God had to drag into heaven. God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He endured all of their grumblings in the desert, but his patience comes to an end when these people refused to trust that God would deliver, deliver them into a land that he said he would. So in our other text today, in Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews provides a a lesson to Christians using this story as an example. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. They, and, they, and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I want to start by looking at the second half of the passage where it says, we start here on a personal level. He says that each of us need to guard ourselves against an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead us to fall away from God. The warning here is to guard our hearts because there is danger living inside each of us from turning away from what we know to be true. And so what is the evil, unbelieving heart? It's a heart that stands off from God, a heart that does not believe God, a heart that will not trust God, and therefore a heart that cannot follow God. And in verse 13, we move on to a corporate warning. He says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need in the encouragement and accountabilities of others, because of other believers, because, let's be honest, sometimes sin seems like it could be fun. And it can look good, it feels good, it promises us much, but it's deceitful. It enslaves us, and in the end, it leaves us broken. Not only that, but sin hardens our hearts, and it alienates us from our Creator. We need others around us to warn us when we're getting into trouble. How different could the story of Israel been if the conversations had been, hey, remember when we were in Egypt? Remember when we had to make bricks all day? And when we didn't make enough bricks, they would whip us? Man, God's awesome. Remember everything God's done? That's awesome. Instead, we got manna again. Oh, I want a steak. And we have the same option today. Is this going to be the people where, peop- where we gather together to think about everything we want to get out of church? Or is this going to be the place where God gets what God wants, always? And I want to focus on another word there 
exhort. It's one of those fancy biblical words that I kind of knew what it meant, and maybe I'd use it if I wanted to sound smart, but I never really gave it much thought. And I was, when I was researching this passage, I found it interesting. The word exhort, the Greek word, is parakaleo, and Jesus uses the same word in John 14 when he says that uh, the Holy Spirit will come as a helper for his disciples. And in my research, I found that an illustration that would be understood in this day with someone who would be coming alongside a long-distance runner to provide encouragement to get to the finish line in the face of mounting fatigue and exhaustion. And just over a month ago, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And yes, I mentioned that to make sure you all know that I'm a better person than you. So, no. <laughs> no, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And now there's over 40,000 people who are in the field of the marathon. And it had to be close to 200,000 people who were watching it. And out of all the people that were around me, I only cared about three. Uh, my wife and Eric and Emily Dush, they came to uh, cheer me on and to, to support me. And, I, and the thing was is that out of everything that could have been done to motivate me, because there was people who were, chat, who were cheering, clapping the entire way around. They had funny signs. Hey, go random stranger. It was, it, there was great times. But the thing was, and I remember this very clearly though, they play a very cruel joke on the runners because right at mile 26.1, there's only one significant hill in the entire race and that's where they put it. It's very, very cruel. And I was just, the last thing I wanted to do was take another step. And I was looking at this hill, and in that very loud Eric Dush voice that only he has, he, I heard, come on, Paul. And, and I ran, and I gave everything I had and got to the finish line. And church, that's why we're here. We're not here for, for cool music or for eloquent bearded preachers, all right? We're n- <laughs> I am, me too, all right. We're not here to get what we want out of anything. We are here to make sure that this is the place where God gets what God wants. And God wants us here to encourage each other that walking by faith matters. Because we've all, we're all in a race. Some of us, we've just started the race. Some of us, we can see the finish line. It might be on the horizon. Some of us have gotten off the race path and we're out in a park wondering, hey, where'd everybody go? All right? But the good news here isn't that we're all in a race and that we started at one point. The good news is that someday God is going to drag all of our sorry tails across the finish line and we get to go, yay, Jesus. All right? Because back to that first part of Hebrews, and this is something I really want to emphasize, this word here we have today. The Holy Spirit says, today. We are warned here that the time to respond is today. We are being reminded that God's word has new truth to speak into our lives. And that truth demands an immediate response. We read in this passage, today, if you hear his voice. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. And when is the time to respond to God? Now is the time. We can so often sit here on Sunday mornings and we think that, yes, the, the, the Holy Spirit speaks truth into my life and I might need to take some action and I need to make some change, but then we sing another song and uh, let, let me get my coat on. Oh, what's for lunch today? What, I wonder what Jean's cooking in the kitchen. What, what am I going to eat? And we let the most mundane, ordinary things cloud the calling of our Creator. We are warned in this passage that a failure to respond, if we let our call to respond today turn into tomorrow, Eventually, that will lead to the hardening of our hearts. And hard hearts lead to rebellion. In his book on Hebrews, Kent Hughes, he says that the problem, it, the, the problem today is that we all have the story of our own exodus. 
we could talk about this point when we began with Christ, that we had a life of sin. Some have very powerful testimonies. We have, we're breaking addiction. We have, you know, there's whole, this sin that has clouded our lives. And how can anyone question what I've experienced in my own heart? And there was a point where we went forward. We left Egypt. We left this life of sin. And, and, but then we left the life of sin. We find ourselves out in the desert. We find ourselves, just, and we can make these great uh, Christian examples like, oh, I didn't drink water from that rock in the desert. I have water from the, the rock that is Jesus Christ. And there's these great piety and, and, all these things, and all these things that we could say to make ourselves feel good and sound good, but then trouble comes. And storms come, and the houses are washed away, and the exodus out of a, single, out of a sinful life that was just so powerful of a testimony has turned into a convenient memory. Trusting God now, well, that's a problem. Because where the heart that used to be by faith has been replaced with a heart of stone. If our hearts become hardened, we expect nothing from God, we attempt nothing for God, and our faith comes down to our ability to do it all instead of trusting in Him. And looking at this feast, I noticed something that there's no New Testament correlation to, to it like we have some of the other feasts. I mean, we have Passover. We celebrate communion, uh, and this is where Jesus took the emblems and he gave them new meetings, said, this is my body, this is my blood, so that we can correlate to today. We have the Feast of Weeks, which now we know as Pentecost, where we have these correlations, but there's no easy connect-the-dots journey here because Jesus never told us to go camping for a week. And Paul writes about this, though, and this is where I make the correlation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, For we know that the earthly tent, that, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to, be put, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may not be swallowed up by life, may be swallowed up by life. For he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So what does this feast speak to us today? Because we're all living in a tent. We are groaning. We are longing for the day when God is going to set everything else right, and we get to live in the house that he has built for us. And in this spirit, Paul goes on in Colossians chapter 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life is no longer what you are making out of it. Your life, there's people in this room uh, who have, who for a number of years you may think, and if you're a believer, whether you're not a believer, you, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm, I'm holding on, I'm trying, trying my best, I'm doing my best. The thing is, is that when, we, when I meet Jesus, when I meet my judge, and all of us are going to be judged, is that if you are saved by the blood of Christ, you will be judged by the good things that you offered him. In Revelation, it says that there's imagery that we will all stand and we will wear crowns of accomplishment. And that Jesus will walk in the room and there's this beautiful picture that we will all take off our accomplishments and lay them at his feet. The real king's in the house. And every one of us will say, I've done nothing. God's not going to say to me, Paul, how many worship services did you lead? Because I could tell him. 
How many Sunday school classes did you teach? Well, I could tell them. How many times did four people show up and three of them slept? Well, I got every one of those numbered. How much money did you give? How many people did you see in the hospital? How many funerals did you officiate? How many weddings? I could go on and on and give you a list of all the things that, that I have done that people measure ministers by. But when my life is over, I'm not going to stand before God as a minister. I'm going to stand before God as a guy who has Jesus' heart beating inside him because Jesus put it there. Church, are you with me? This is not a day where we celebrate that we are better than other people. Why are we called to encourage each other every day? Because we are a people with broken hearts. And God does surgery to replace our hard hearts with the heart of life. Our choice today is to choose life with Jesus and all of its promises, or we can choose death in the desert. Quit battling and trying to be as American as you can be and still go to church. Get rid of the idols. Put things aside like fame and accomplishment and money and possessions. You put all that aside, and when you do, you can say that the only thing that I'll stand on for the rest of my life, the only thing that provides me any kind of security, the only thing that defines me in a way that I need to be defined is Jesus Christ. Church, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and then I'm done. Is God good? Is God good when you're bad? Is God good when you're broken? Is God for you when you've been against him? Did Jesus Christ come so that you could have life that you could not have had without him? That's the reason right now that we're going to spend some time thanking God through music for all that he's done for us. If there's something that you need, if you need to be prayed with, if you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward as we sing this song.